Hello and welcome to episode number 259 of the Armin Show podcast, where everything is different every single time. On this episode, we have our guest, Catherine Mangu Ward, editor-in-chief of Reason Magazine. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. This is great. The Reason logo is in the back. That's wonderful. I looked it up. Reason has been around for a long time, like half a century, something like that. That's right, 1968. That's an extensive period of time. Now, how did you get into your role there? What led up to this point to where you are at? Uh, well, I suppose that's a big question, depending on uh, where I answer it from. But um, Reason, uh, as I mentioned, is about 50 years old now. It, uh, you know, 1968 was a big year, a lot of tumult uh, in that period, and also the very beginning of the American libertarian movement, um, in particular, the, the word libertarian starts to get some currency around that time. Uh, our motto is that we are the magazine of free minds and free markets, and we think both of those elements are equally important. And that is a way, one way, among many ways, to summarize libertarianism. Um, I am the editor-in-chief of the magazine and uh, started out here actually as an intern when I was in college in the summer of 2000, um, had a few other gigs along the way, and then came back. And uh, I think it's somewhat unusual these days to well, really for anyone to have a job that long and also to kind of work your way up through the ranks. But um, I'm delighted to work here and think we do important work. That is cool. Now, what is a libertarian magazine? What does it mean to be libertarian? So um, a libertarian is, uh, I, you know, a long time ago, I used to say someone who is socially liberal and fiscally conservative. But I've actually found in the last maybe five to 10 years that that isn't uh, meaningful anymore in a way that it used to be. That is, people used to understand those two terms to mean, I am someone who is concerned about personal freedom and civil liberties and um, you know, the right to uh, self-expression uh, on the one hand, but that I also am concerned about government spending and the intrusion of the state into the economy. And so I want um, the, the government spending to be as small as possible, the footprint of government to be as small as possible, and that I see those two goals as complementary. Nowadays, I would say when you say socially liberal, people think you mean free college for everyone or something like that. Um, so that term is kind of broken down. And then at the same time, fiscally conservative has ceased to have very much meaning when you think about the fact that the Republicans in Congress, which are the closest thing most Americans can see to a conservative, um, have been utterly fiscally profligate even before uh, the coronavirus crisis. So then when you say, okay, well, what does it mean to be a libertarian? Nowadays, uh, I will often say something like, we're looking to maximize choice in all areas of human life. That's one way to think about it. Um, I want people to be free to make their own decisions about nearly everything. Um, and I want the, the uh, rules and restrictions imposed on them by the government to be as few as possible. Um, not just because I want to be left alone, but because I think that's the way that individuals and societies flourish. Mm -hmm. There's a freedom aspect to it. Yes. Now, how likely would it have been that you would have gone to a different magazine or how much do you fit the magazine you are currently at? A hundred percent. I, uh, I am, I have long identified as a libertarian. Um, you know, for me, 
It's not, um, you know, the, the project of Reason Magazine isn't just to be libertarians in its pages, right? I mean, we could, we could write textbooks or give speeches or, or write, you know, academic essays if that's what we wanted to do. Um, but instead, we are a magazine of politics and culture and technology. And so what we do is look to the news every day. We look to um, the issue areas where, that we think are important. And we do um, both investigative reporting in those areas, especially, for instance, in the area of criminal justice, where Reason Magazine has a 50-year track record of being super engaged in calling for criminal justice reform. Um, we do a lot of reporting there. Um, also a lot of reporting in the area of kind of civil liberties and um, rule of law, the courts, that kind of thing. And uh, at the same time, we think politics isn't all that matters. So we also see the role of a libertarian magazine as talking about celebrating, criticizing where, uh, where appropriate um, the conduct of um, businesses and players in the market, as well as um, really just kind of documenting and, um, uh, and analyzing the incredible proliferation of culture and cultural products that capitalism makes possible in the United States right now. Mm -hmm. It is true. It does make quite a few things possible. Now, what does an editor-in-chief do mostly? Is it actual editing of articles? Is it choosing what goes up? Is it choosing what doesn't go up? Uh, it's a little bit of everything. Um, I am I am in charge of the entire journalism staff. So um, a lot of what I do is think about the balance of coverage on our site. I help reporters uh, choose assignments. I edit articles. I write myself as well. Um, and Reason consists not only of a print magazine, uh, which is published monthly, but also of um, uh, a website, obviously, where we publish daily. We have uh, daily and weekly newsletters. We also have three weekly podcasts and a YouTube channel that has over half a million subscribers where we release uh, somewhere between two to five videos a week. Mm -hmm. It's very good to be putting out content across the board, especially right now. This is a wonderful time for the virtual world to expand more than it ever has in recent times. There's almost no choice at this point, which is nice in a way. It's a little push forward. That's right. We've actually, we've seen a huge bump in traffic, and this is true for news sites um, and political commentary sites across the board, uh, but people's lives are moving online. And the fact that, um, you know, for instance, we used to see primarily traffic during the kind of nine to five period when people were at their desks, and we now see that traffic uh, every day, every time of day, um, you know, people are changing their patterns and the way they use the internet once they are no longer constrained by the kind of rituals and traditions of the physical world. And for us, that's an opportunity, um, but it can also, as all kinds of change can be, it can be you know, stressful for the consumer and, and confusing for producers because they don't know who they're producing for anymore or when or exactly what their user profile looks like. It's true. If I put out content, a six-year-old could enjoy it at some point, and I wouldn't that's know. That's right. <laughs> They're like, I like this. Uh, speaking of making content, what has been, how has it been valuable for you to put out content of your own? Has that connected you with certain people? Do you like putting out content of your own? Yeah, I mean, I am always struck by how very different our audiences are on different platforms. I'm sure this is something you have experienced as well. Um, the people who listen to our podcasts have a very different relationship to the Reason brand and to Reason editors. 
um, than the people who read the print magazine, for instance. Uh, we have some people who have been subscribing to the print magazine since the beginning. I mean, we actually have 50-year subscribers to the print magazine, and so they have this very deep uh, relationship with the idea of, you know, 80 pages that shows up in their mailbox every month and they expect a certain type of content, they expect a certain kind of depth and level of engagement that you would imagine from long form print. Uh, for those readers, we're always trying to provide them with the kind of content that they would recognize, something that looks to them, you know, we don't wanna give them the same thing they would have read in Reason 50 years ago, but we certainly wanna build on that and we're conscious of where they expect the magazine to be. Whereas our podcast listeners are typically much younger and um, they also relate to um, the Monday podcast that we do, which is called The Reason Roundtable, is me as well as three other editors, Nick Gillespie, Matt Welsh, and Peter Suderman. And uh, they relate to us much more personally. And as a producer, that's something that's kind of new for me. I mean, I've always been just a byline, you know, a sort of invisible person behind um, a page of words. And it's a very different experience to be a voice whispering in someone's ear or something that they see on the screen. Um, and so we, you know, we do think about um, how to present content differently to that audience as well. And one thing we talk about, as I mentioned earlier on the podcast, is um, what we are consuming, what we like to read, what we like to watch, what our lives are like uh, in relation to the news. So we're still always coming back to our mission of kind of promoting free minds and free markets and analyzing news and current events from the libertarian perspective, but there are very different ways to do that. And, you know, I think it can be easy to say, if you're not doing high level, you know, could be published in an academic journal or, um, you know, as an economic working paper type analysis, you're not, you're not doing serious work, but I really disagree. And I think it's important to communicate with different types of audiences wherever they are and, and engage with them um, at a place where they can understand our principles. So one example of that is um, what we call, we, we used to call in the 90s, nanny state stories. So these are stories about um, little inconveniences that are imposed by the state. You know, why can't I have a plastic straw? Why, uh, you know, why is my favorite flavor of vaping cartridge suddenly banned? And um, those aren't on some macro level, those are not important stories, right? That is not as important as the debt and deficit. That is not as important as the question of what, what countries should we be at war with? What, you know, th there are very, very big questions in politics that are live right now. And so you might say, well, geez, who cares about straws? But the fact is that for some people, not having that straw when they pick up their Starbucks is the way in to thinking about the proper role of the state. And so if that's the door in, that's the door I want to take. I want to be there to, you know, talk with someone about that pain point in their life. And, and then, you know, we can work our way up from there. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. A few key points you brought up there. One, I think about that, the collective that we are all part of it. So it doesn't matter what level of research or presentation. It's sort of like a, broader people sending out their messages. Each person is relevant in their own regard. And then the magazine coming out each month, I used to have a word search that I got when I was little and it's like, it just it would come out with like a hundred word search things every month and then you'd find the words. And it's just nice to have that. I had that for like a year. 
Sure. And then, I think I, w- I was a subscriber to Highlights magazine, if anybody remembers. Highlights was super cool, if I remember correctly. Sure. I think that had some pretty good word searches in it, too. Yeah. But there, but there is something, right? I mean, there's a, there's a rhythm. There's an expectation of kind of getting this delivery. And in an era when paper mail is almost perfectly irrelevant, I am continually struck by the fact that the first question that people ask me if they haven't heard of Reason Magazine is, oh, well, is it a real magazine or is it just like online? And that, that shouldn't matter, right? It shouldn't matter what platform it's being delivered on, but it does matter to people. And this sort of sense of reality and importance and permanency of a print magazine um, strikes me over and over, even as someone who otherwise is not a big dead tree person and who would happily read everything on my phone. It's kind of cool to be a, both. Are, I like both. I read a lot of books. Now, the roundtable that you do, it's you and those three individuals. Mm-hmm. How has that been beneficial? Do you like that format? Does it allow for something you don't get elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, we were a bit late to the podcast game uh, as, an, as an institution. We were early to the internet. So uh, Reason Magazine got online when... The, when no one even quite knew what it would mean to be an online magazine. Um, but uh, for a variety of reasons, we got a little bit late into the podcasting space. And I regret that because it's been so rewarding. For us, the Monday podcast is essentially just an editorial meeting that we clean up and present to the world. Um, it's where we kind of talk about what's going on that week and what our analysis of that is. Uh, we'll often sort of skip between, you know, we'll cover the election, we'll cover some state or local story, uh, we'll kind of move back and forth between questions of um, bigger uh, kind of rhetorical trends or um, cultural trends to something very nitty gritty and specific. And that's how a real magazine newsroom functions. And so I think, you know, it's cool to be able to give people a look at that. But we also have a podcast on Wednesdays that's just a straight Q&A. My colleague Nick Gillespie does those interviews and he just sits down with interesting people and talks to them uh, in a pretty standard podcast format. Uh, And then we also have live events, had live events until recently uh, in New York City that are uh, Oxford style debates. And so we release those as podcasts as well, since not everyone can Um, get to the physical event in New York, of course, and now no one can. Um, We we like to give people a chance to to consume the debates that way. That is pretty cool. Long live New York. I visited there for the first time uh, about a month, a month, something ago, month and a half. Maybe never again. Maybe not. I was the last people. I was one of the The last last man out of New York. (laughs) Something like that. Are you in, but where are you currently based, by the way? I'm in Washington, D.C. I actually grew up here. I'm a Beltway baby. So uh, this is sometimes a little unusual for a libertarian. You don't expect to see people who think that the government isn't the most important thing in life living in the center of government. Um, But uh, for us as journalists, it's important to be here to understand what's going on. Um, One thing that is different about Reason's subscriber profile compared with other similar magazines in our category. So I'm thinking here of magazines like National Review or The Atlantic or The Nation or Mother Jones, um, our subscribers are much more evenly spread out around the country. Libertarians don't tend to be clustered on the coasts in the same way that other magazine readers are. And so we see our role at least partially as being kind of dispatches from the, the capital, even if it's somewhere that our readers would prefer to stay far away from. 
long live the capital, running our nation. Now, as far as outward input and relation to this current, there's a pandemic. I like to point this out in recent episodes. There's still like some, some still pandemic. Happening. Yeah, yep. still occurring. And in relation to that, you had written a bit in an article about how online tools will expand, the barriers to them will fall. And what comes to mind specifically as far as schooling or remote work and possibly healthcare changes that are on the way? Yeah, so for, for me, one of the most interesting things about coronavirus and the kind of response to it has been the falling away of some regulatory barriers that probably shouldn't have been there in the first place. And I don't think net net that COVID-19 is going to be a win for individual liberty. Uh, obviously, we are currently in basically a nationwide lockdown. So uh, it's the opposite of the libertarian ideal in many ways. But uh, I'm a pretty optimistic person. And one thing that I see as some silver linings uh, is that, um, you know, for a long time, there's been a, a really broad national conversation about the ways that education is not working for kids, especially K-12. Uh, and, you know, public schools are, um, depending on the lens that you're looking at, looking at the question through, maybe you think they're underfunded, maybe you think they're overfunded, maybe you think they have too many rules, maybe you think they don't have enough rules, maybe you think the problem is the teachers. Everybody has a different diagnosis. But the willingness to try something radically different has been understandably constrained by the fact that parents need predictability. They need to know what their kids are going to do next week and next year. They need to have that. Um, and that's so baked into our society all the way up through the fact that your housing decisions are often based on a school district. You buy a house for most people, the biggest financial transaction that they'll make in their lives based on uh, a dubious promise from the government that your kids will be able to go to a school nearby. And that concept is uh, one that we think and talk about a lot here at Reason. What, you know, what does it mean that this public school monopoly is so thoroughly established and so difficult to break or even experiment within? This is a huge experiment. We are in the middle of a massive experiment about what happens if public schools break down or go away substantially. And you know, I wrote in Politico that I think some parents, not all, not me, for instance, but some parents are gonna come away from this saying, you know what, I actually don't need to rely on the traditional model of schooling, whether it be public or private, as much as I thought. I do like having more control over my kids' education. They may come away saying, you know what, the work that the teachers are sending home, which I wasn't really in touch with before because my kids are just gone all day, I don't think that's the right work for my kids to be doing. And I, I think in the end, wherever that ends up, it's going to be additional parental empowerment and there's going to be more um, proliferation of choice and tools to help with homeschooling or with somewhat heterodox educational choices. And I think that's a really good thing. I, I just, I, if you're relying on the fact that people have no choice for them to keep using your product, it's not a good product. And that is, that is where we have been with education in this country. And I, uh, I've been following the kind of rise of online schooling for a really long time. That was actually my beat when I was a, uh, just kind of a straight reporter. And the, the, it's been frustrating to see how slow that progress has been. And this is 
um, this is an opportunity. Now, of course, for many, many people, this is also an emergency. And so I don't want to play that down too much. I mean, if you are an essential worker, essential worker, if you need to go to a job that has an hourly wage, being told like, hooray, you get to experiment with your children's education. There's no one to care for them while you work. That's a disaster. Uh, but that's to me a flaw with the system as it existed before um, that we had sort of yoked together the, the rather separate concepts of how are my kids gonna learn to read? What am I going to do with them all day? And also someone should probably run them around outside occasionally. Like those three things have all been lumped together for so long that parents don't, didn't have the tools or the wherewithal to deal with it when that whole system broke down. So I, I don't wanna exaggerate like, hooray, this is a great opportunity and everyone's just sitting at home singing Kumbaya with their children and teaching them calculus. At the same time, this is an area that was really ripe for change and innovation. Mm -hmm. In the narrower view, it is somewhat anguish filled for groups, but in the broader view, this is something that would have been preferable on a bigger scale for a lot of people over time. So it's kind of like a nice little knock towards that. Yeah. One thing that comes to mind is what is the impact on liberty after this? Is this increased liberty, uh, reduced? How are people coming out of this? I, I'm, it's hard for me to say. I, I think um, many journalists were chastened after the 2016 election in terms of their ability to predict anything. I know that I was certainly among the, uh, the people inside the bubble who were completely confident that Hillary Clinton was going to win. I didn't necessarily want Hillary Clinton to win, but I thought she was going to win. I had a coverage plan for Reason Magazine for the Clinton presidency and that all fell apart on election night. Um, so I since then have tried to practice a certain amount of humility in terms of uh, gazing into the old crystal ball. At the same time, uh, you know, if I have to guess, if I have to kind of look ahead and say, is this ultimately going to be good for liberty? I have to say, I think the answer is no. And here's why. If you look at the two crises in recent memory, the ones that I can remember basically as an adult, it's 9-11 and then the housing crisis and, or the financial crisis caused by the housing crisis. And 9-11 um, was not, there's no way to interpret what happened after that as a win for liberty. We got the TSA, we got the Department of Homeland Security, we got a permanent congressional authorization for eternal global war. Like this is, this was not good news for freedom. And um, there were many people who would have said, listen, actually it was, you know, the country rallied together and supported New York and, and supported the, you know, the Pentagon workers. And, and there certainly were silver linings there too, I think from many perspectives, but the massive growth of our defense spending and our uh, security bureaucracy have been deeply alarming to witness in the after effects of 9-11. Then you think about the housing crisis where we had bipartisan consensus that we should bail out big banks and big lenders, that we should basically hand over control of significant portions of the economy to the government in the short run. Uh, we took on massive amounts of debt. Stimulus spending may or may not have been effective at all, again, bipartisan. Um, so in that case, it was more of an economic cataclysm from which we have still not recovered. We went into this coronavirus crisis already deeper in debt than we had ever been before. 
barring the post-World War II era. Now we are deeper in debt than even the post-World War II era. And this has to, this, like, we, we can't keep riding that merry-go-round forever. So I think um, those two crises make me pretty pessimistic about how we are going to emerge from this one. I think we could emerge with both a massive growth in the economic footprint of the state. Um, obviously, we're already seeing that. And also a massive growth in the surveillance state and the power of the public health bureaucracy. And I think all of that will be despite the fact that the government has not covered itself in glory here. The United States government did not respond competently and quickly to this crisis. And yet, in the end, I fear that, for instance, the FDA and the CDC, which just made very, very clear um, mistakes that were that cost lives, um, particularly with regard to testing and authorization of the production of more tests, as well as guidance about mask wearing, um, they're going to end up with more power, not less, at the end of this process. And I, I think that's pretty inevitable, and I think it's going to be bad for America. Mm. It's a hard hit. One thing that comes to mind is, as a lot of the material that is spoken about on Reason is political, and a lot of the heftiest comments on the internet made are related to politics, do you get a lot of feedback that's like more uh, polarized or harsh in relation to content from the magazine? We do, but our position as libertarians actually puts us in a kind of unusual, uh, an unusual stance vis-a-vis -vis the partisans of the internet. So uh, after uh, Barack Obama left office, um, we had, you know, for, for eight years been very critical of what we thought of as many of his missteps, including um, his failure to fulfill promises about scaling back or ending the war on drugs, um, slow movement on gay rights, uh, a whole bunch of other, you know, transparency. There were a bunch of issues where we agreed with people on the left, but were critical of uh, Obama's handling, in addition, of course, to being critical about his approach to government spending and healthcare and other areas. Um, the result was that eight years of that commentary had made a certain percentage of our readers think maybe we liked Republicans. And then a Republican took office and we were like, this guy is screwing up a lot. Let's talk about that. And uh, so there is this kind of like whiplash or confusion that happens. Uh, people, even though libertarians have been around for a long time, not just the 50 years of Reason Magazine, but also the kind of classical liberal tradition before that, that hails back to Adam Smith and Hume and other thinkers in the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, you know, there's, there are, um, there are a lot of there are a lot of people who still don't quite know what to make of a libertarian and who just want you to be on the red team or on the blue team pick a team and our conversation of course is very tribal uh, around politics and people get very animated about these questions and so um, we try to always offer in every piece of content that we produce every video every podcast every article um, we try to assume that our reader is not necessarily a libertarian and just argue on the merits about whatever it is that we're presenting. You know, this is bad, beca not because you already understand all libertarians. This is bad because it has bad outcomes, or this is bad because it will be bad in the long run for a certain shared American value. Um, so, you know, I think 
I think it is true that political commentary on the internet is, is not, is not discourse at its finest as a general matter. On the other hand, people always held these beliefs. I don't actually think people have gotten worse. I think it's just that the internet makes it easier to see a very large number of people being jerks at any given moment. I mean, I long ago at the very, very beginning of my career edited uh, letters to the editor pages at a couple of different publications and people were pretty angry then. It's just that they wrote one letter and mailed it to me and I read it and threw it away. And now they can put it for everyone in the whole world to see. That's true. That's a good point. Everything's getting multiplied. The exposition is definitely happening at this current time. One thing I took into account as far as Reason Magazine, it has had a lot of contributors way early on. Even some people I once worked with a student and they were reading from Thomas Sowell, who is famous and other mm -hmm. authors. Uh, who are some of these authors or political individuals who you identify with or any books you have liked as of recently? So one thing that's interesting, actually, from a perspective of what, where do people find the ideas that are important to them? Because that's something I think about a lot. You know, I like to think sometimes Reason Magazine is that vector that people discover Reason Magazine and say, oh, this, this matches up with my worldview. I recognize this, you know, to have this kind of sense of belonging or recognition or con congruency with our, with our editorial line. But um, it used to be that most people became libertarians by reading a book. And that book was often The Road to Serfdom um, by F.A. Hayek or um, a book by Ayn Rand, uh, The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged. Uh, that brought in a lot of people. Um, some other options too, um, Economics in One Lesson. Um, some people read Ludwig von Mises. There, there are other books that brought people in, but it was very often a book of political economy of some kind that, uh, that would draw people in. Starting uh, about a decade ago, we began getting people who, when we said um, in a job interview or just in a conversation, you know, how did you become a libertarian? People would just say, um, Ron Paul, right? The Ron Paul campaign was a really big deal to a lot of people. I myself was eh, only kind of a Ron Paul fan, not the biggest fan of Ron Paul. Uh, I think he did a good job of getting a lot of messages out, but he was ultimately a conservative libertarian. He was ultimately allied with the Republican Party. His version of libertarianism is not exactly mine. That's fine. I'm, you know, I'm kind of big tent about it, but it, there are many people who were really energized by his candidacy in a way that I think now people, I guess until this week, were energized by the Bernie Sanders candidacy. There is something interesting about an, a grumpy old grandpa who has held his principles his whole life. And that's something that Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders really have in common. They are outside of the mainstream of US politics. They have been deeply consistent. They are not phonies. They are not fake. They are not checking polling to see what they should do or say or how they should vote. They just have a clear set of beliefs and that guides their, their views. So Ron Paul started bringing people in. Now I would say it's even more diverse and fractured. Now you say, well, what made you a libertarian or what do you read? And people say, I don't know, I follow a bunch of YouTubers or I read Reddit or I follow all these people on Twitter and I like what they have to say. So I think in some ways the question of like, who is an influence on your thinking has become less relevant. Um, at the same time, I will say, 
because Reason has been around for so long, we've published a lot of the kind of the greats in terms of our pantheon of libertarian thinkers. So that includes people like Milton Friedman, who has been uh, much cited and much vilified over the years. Um, you know, he uh, contributed somewhat regularly to Reason. Um, also Hayek himself. Uh, we had a great interview 45 years ago with Ronald Reagan in which he says, uh, libertarianism is the heart of conservatism. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there are some, some real kind of big names from that kind of golden mid late 20th century era that really call out to people at the same time. I think that era is pretty decidedly over. And what we see instead is somebody saying, you know, I started listening to Joe Rogan, but he was too brash for me. And then I found you guys or something along those lines. Um, and that's fine too. People, again, what we were sort of talking about at the top of this conversation, you know, people come across ideas that are compelling to them in different ways. And I was one of those Ayn Rand kids. I read Ayn Rand's novels, which are kind of pulp novels about economic breakdown in society <laughs> or about, um, you know, art and business. Uh, not necessarily, you know, it's, it's not as if I you know, went looking at a bunch of, uh, you know, formal economic modeling and said, oh, okay, now I see why markets work to allocate resources. Right. There's different ways to take in information. Sometimes I've looked at how a certain type of maybe a fiction book compares to a nonfiction book, compares to a spiritual book, compares to, they all have kind of a different way to express similar underlying messages. I like that you take concepts and look at them broadly like even a specific book or person it's more about now multiple incoming information from youtube or wherever reddit yeah. it's not the same as it was prior which is kind of a niche factor we also see a lot of people who come in through science fiction i mean i think there is something about um people of many political persuasions but especially people whose political persuasions are somewhat outside of the mainstream who are interested in asking the question what would be possible if things were very different or if one important thing was very different? And that is the question of science fiction. What if everything was the same except we were on Mars? What if everything was the same except for uh, you know, the baseline of the technology we had available to us was different? What if everything was the same except you know, the South won the Civil War? What if, I mean, you know, the, this sort of idea of speculative fiction and science fiction as just asking the question what if? And I think that that's something that everyone who considers themselves a serious political thinker should do. You should say, well, what if public schools all close? What happens then? Um, you know, what if uh, doctors can't see patients because they're consumed with a public health crisis? And, you know, that's, where, that's how we wind up covering the real boom in telemedicine and stuff that's happening right now, because we knew to go look there. What if every drug was legal? Let's talk about the FDA. Let's talk about deregulating, uh, deregulating and decriminalizing drugs. You know, I think there are ways into the modern political discourse that can sound like science fiction in the first question and then become very quickly uh, a way to really meaningfully talk about something that could substantially change in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. The what if is very important. I usually don't go much into fiction, but whenever I look at it, it there's an analog to some of the content I read or talk yeah. about. So I've noticed that. 
that's kind of cool. It kind of connects to, well, what is there any, what, what is one change or alteration or growth you would make to Reason Magazine in the next year or two if there was something outside the bounds to try out? Is there anything that comes to mind that would... So something that we're always looking to do is just more investigative reporting. And the thing about investigative reporting is that it's incredibly resource intensive. It's very expensive. And sometimes you spend six months on a story and you get nothing. Sometimes you just do the investigation all the way down to the bottom and you either hit a wall or you discover that the scandal you thought was there isn't there or that it was incompetence, not conspiracy, which is a different kind of story or whatever it is. Again, not, we do not traffic in conspiracy theories. And I think it's important to say that because people do have mistaken understanding of what libertarians are like. But you know, when you go looking for reported stories, you sometimes just don't find what you're looking for. And that's a sign you're a good reporter, right? If you're a reporter who always finds exactly what you're looking for, you're not a reporter, you're a cherry picker. And I think, um, you know, for a small magazine like ours, you know, we're a 501c3, we're a nonprofit. Um, devoting those resources can be really hard, but when we have done it, it's also been really rewarding. Um, for instance, we did a huge investigation a couple years back of um, just a tremendously large number of Chicago police officers who were shooting dogs. And it's not the kind of story you would go looking for naturally, but we got a tip and we started seeing some reports and we followed up. We did a big Freedom of Information Act request and we basically found that this, this urban police department was, was just killing people's, like they would just go to people's houses and kill their dogs as kind of a matter of course. And it's the kind of story, again, like police departments do a lot of terrible things and to people, to humans. And so you might say this isn't the most important story, but that story generated a huge amount of outrage. In the end, it generated reform inside the police department, including different training procedures. And I would like to think like saved some people's pets. So that's the kind of thing that takes a very long time to do. We might have filed these Freedom of Information Act requests and gotten nothing back. We might have filed them and gotten um, in, incomplete data back that we couldn't have drawn a conclusion from. As it happens, we, had a, we were lucky. We had a very talented reporter, CJ Ciramella, who was working on that story. And he was able to take the giant piles of garbage data that they did give us and clean them up and really get meaningful conclusions. Um, we've done the same thing with a lot of other stories. But doing more of that, I think, is more important than ever. Um, this is why you see institutions like ProPublica that have sprung up um, and uh, the, the Fuller Project and other um, other institutions that just support investigative reporting and then let someone else publish it. Uh, I think that's really important. And um, if you, like me, are on, uh, follow lots of journalists on Twitter, you're already hearing that a tremendous number of publications are folding or furloughing employees. Um, it's not a good time for journalism as a business. And so uh, it seems more important than ever to kind of protect that hardcore investigative work that no one else is going to do. Mm -hmm. When you were describing that, it makes me think of scientists when they do research on like a protein crystallization or some sort of drug design. They try something maybe for three months. Some people, their PhD was for a year and a half or something that they looked at. This didn't work. Then they had to go somewhere else. And that's part of it. If, if you cut out that important, I call it the good stuff because you're actually trying things out. You can't get to the Cherry picking doesn't work in life or else we just have our path like this is the right, right. thing and there then is this a, is the right thing. 
there's definitely a journalistic equivalent of i might be using this term wrong p hacking like there's some, you know yeah, there's yeah. like that that absolutely happens uh in journalism much too often and you know sometimes we're just telling a story Sometimes it's fine because you're just saying, this is an anecdote. I'm telling you this story. I cannot make any empirical claims about how frequently this happens or whatever. But sometimes you really are trying to get to the answer, uh, an empirical truth about whether something is common or uncommon or legal or illegal. And um, at that point, sort of rigorous good practice and good hygiene means that you're just going to sometimes do a lot of work and not be able to publish anything. Mm -hmm. Very important topic about outcome dependence, independence, because across so many parts of life, it's very limiting to have the goal as your requirement from now, because there's obviously variables along the way, and you can't manage all of them, or even know all of them yet. Okay. That's a wonderful thing. I always like to add this element in closing. What is one message, if you had a megaphone to all people of the planet that you would like to let them know uh, a message for them or a message from your content that you put out? What is something you'd like to tell all people of the earth? I mean, I think, I think the message is just that when we can, we should let people make their own choices, that people are surprisingly good at making smart, efficient choices with the information that they have. And the notion that just because something is bad it should be illegal or just because an outcome doesn't look efficient that the market or the industry should be manipulated by the government. That I think is, is the wrong way of looking at politics. It's the wrong way of looking at governance and that we should really just go back to the idea of the individual and we should maximize the space for individuals to do what they want to do as long as they're not hurting other people. Because when we do that, we get the kind of innovations and the kind of personal fulfillment and happiness and creative production that, um, that really drives society forward. And, um, and that is, I think, just systematically undervalued in our political conversation. And I wish that we could sort of take a minute and, um, and think about how much space we can give individuals um, to be free and make their own choices. That is a great thing. People have natural abilities. Catherine, I would like to thank you for having been on this wonderful episode of the show. Thank you for having me. And we are out.